Explore. This is your host, Adam Graham. For the first 26 months of World War II, the United States was not involved, officially. But Americans were definitely interested in what was going on overseas. And one radio program really uh, catered to that interest, provided solid uh, education. And we're going to listen to a few episodes of that show over the next two days. So today's episode is Americans Look Abroad, Part 1. With the entry into the war, political situation in the United States dictated uh, neutrality. And as the war began, President Roosevelt made it clear that this would be the policy of the United States of America. In this speech from September 1st, 1939. This nation will remain a neutral nation. But I cannot ask that every American remain neutral in thought as well. Even a neutral has a right to take account of facts. Even a neutral cannot be asked to close his mind or close his conscience. I have said not once, but many times, that I have seen war and that I hate war. I say that again and again. I hope the United States will keep out of this war. I believe that it will. And I give you assurance and reassurance that every effort of your government will be directed toward that end. President Roosevelt clearly less enthusiastic about neutrality than Herbert Hoover was. President Roosevelt would do everything he could uh, to help the Allies within the limit of the political situation. War is not an issue that you try and uh, drag a nation into when people are not with you. For its part, England in these early years of the war was determined to do whatever it took to achieve victory. In some cases this meant stepping on the toes of the crews of American ships, and even uh, international law. And that brings us to our series, which will tell us about this um, incident and this uh, situation from early in 1940. I'm going to play some episodes from a series called America Looks Abroad. The series is produced by the Foreign Policy Association, a nonpartisan research group that sets out to educate Americans on all sides of potential foreign policy decisions. The Foreign Policy Association was formed out of a group that had tried to get U.S. ratification of the League of Nations and failed, and turned to a more educational approach to foreign policy. At the start of the war, NBC knew that Americans would be much more interested in foreign policy. And they did something that I think was uh, very different and something that I would wish that that uh, media organizations might do today. They started a program about foreign policy and had it produced by an educational foreign policy think tank. And in each episode they would have a single uh, officer or staff member from that think tank give the American people a 15 minute in-depth briefing. 
no sound bites, no talking down to the audience, no playing to the least common denominator, just a very informative program. And this first episode we'll play for you is from January the 28th of 1940. And it deals with this question, can America defend its neutrality? Let's take a listen. America looks abroad, presented at this hour on Sunday afternoon by the officers and staff members of the Foreign Policy Association. This nonpartisan organization, which is open to all who are interested in American foreign policy, offers accurate information on current world events. Can America defend its neutral rights is the question which will be discussed today by Mr. David H. Popper, research associate of the Foreign Policy Association. Mr. Popper. Good afternoon. During the last fortnight, the British Empire, like Germany, has been running into some rather heavy weather in its conduct of the war. It has taken a buffeting in the American press because of its treatment of American rights and interests, a point we shall consider in a moment. It is faced with a bitter political campaign in Canada. It has antagonized the Japanese by seizing Germans aboard Japanese vessels just a few miles off the coast of Japan. Its bid for support from the European neutrals, made by Winston Churchill on January 20th, has backfired sharply. These events are by no means crucial, but they are significant. Our own difficulties with the Allies are to us much more important. We have kept the cables warm with a series of diplomatic protests to London over the violation of our neutral rights. The American notes deal with four distinct subjects. First, we have sent a communication on the Allied blockade of German exports, which was put into effect on December 4th. International law permits a nation at war to cut off shipments bound for an enemy country, if these are contraband, that is, if they are of use in war. It does not, however, permit a nation to cut off the exports of its enemy to a neutral country. We therefore have good legal grounds for questioning the British in this instance. Still, it is very doubtful that we will push our protest on this point to extremes. For in the last war, the Allies successfully carried out a similar economic blockade of Germany. We protested, but only for the record. And violations of international law, although they may be illegal at the time, soon tend to become precedents which others feel free to follow. The second point on which we are making representations to the British is the practice of forcing American vessels to call at Allied ports in order to make sure that no contraband arrives in Germany. As our State Department has pointed out, the Allied contraband control bases are, many of them, situated within the combat area proclaimed by the President under the Neutrality Act. Under our law, this area is barred to American ships and American citizens so that the Allies are actually forcing American vessels to violate our laws when our ships are diverted for examination into Allied ports. In our second communication on this question, published only last Monday, we vigorously demanded that the forceful diversion of American ships into Mediterranean ports should cease. We were particularly put out because the evidence showed that our ships were detained three times as long as Italian vessels in this area. Here again, the textbook rules of international law are on our side. 
They allow countries at war to stop our merchant ships on the high seas and examine ships' papers there. But these ships may not be forced into port for further search unless there is clear evidence that they are carrying contraband. But once more, world war practice by the British and the French now forms a precedent for their conduct today. So our prospects are not very bright for getting much satisfaction on either the blockade of German exports or interference with American shipping on the high seas. The British may, however, agree to search our ships in Canadian ports outside the combat zone. A third incident on the diplomatic battleground, the exchange of notes on the Pan-American neutrality zone, falls in a different category. This time, the Allies have the law on their side. As you remember, on October 3rd last, the foreign ministers of the 21 American republics met at Panama City and adopted the Declaration of Panama, stating the inherent right of the Americas to see that the waters around the American continents were not disturbed by the hostile acts of any belligerent. What we were trying to do, in other words, was to keep the war out of a broad band of ocean extending 300 miles or more off the American coast from the Canadian-American border southward. This was a novel doctrine because international law has always provided that outside the customary three-mile limit, the seas are a free highway, open to all, for all the legitimate purposes of peace or war. Both belligerents in the European war soon made it plain that they were not going to honor this so-called inherent right of the American republics. The Grafsch Bay affair indicated more clearly than any words could have done that to make the Declaration of Panama effective, we must either enforce it with our navy or somehow induce the belligerents to accept it voluntarily. Both Britain and France have sent us notes laying down the terms on which they might possibly agree not to commit hostile acts within the safety belt. But those terms are so sweeping that they obviously are not going to be fulfilled in the near future. The British note, for example, said that British warships could not be expected to stay out of American waters unless German naval vessels and supply ships were prevented from using the area as a sanctuary where they could take refuge from Allied attack. They even proposed that German shipping plying up and down the American coast must be halted and that all German shipping in American harbors must be laid up for the duration of the war. What this means is that the British government will not suspend its warlike activities in the Pan-American safety zone or anywhere else until the German flag has disappeared from the waters concerned. Such conditions are hardly of help to us, for under those circumstances, hostile activities in American waters would cease anyhow, declaration or no declaration. Legally, the Allies are in an ironclad position on this question, and there would seem to be very little we can do to make the safety zone a reality. A more acute controversy has arisen over Britain's removal of American mail from American or other neutral vessels and censorship of letters addressed to neutral countries. We are ready to admit that the British government may open private mails bound for the United Kingdom or normally passing through that country on their way to their final destination. But we do protest strongly against interference with American mails on the high seas and on ships which the British have forced into British-controlled ports. Here again, 
the law is on our side. In 1907, both Britain and the United States had signed a convention on the subject of the Hague, which provides that the postal correspondence of neutrals or belligerents, and I am quoting, whatever its official or private character may be, found on the high seas on board neutral or enemy ships, is inviolable. But again, the British have reverted to their position of 1914-1918, when exactly the same controversy arose. They argued today, as they argued then, that a nation at war has a right to open mail to find out whether it contains contraband, such as securities, checks, drafts, or industrial diamonds. The British say that there is an organized traffic between the United States and Germany in these financial papers. Far from admitting that their action is illegal, they ask us why we don't protest to the Germans, who sink ships by mine and torpedo without any regard for the safety of either males or passengers. On strictly legal grounds, the British arguments really do not meet the point. It is, of course, true that some financial instruments, such as securities, may reach the Germans in first-class mail. But the amount involved seems not to be very large, and the Germans could cash in on these securities without necessarily shipping them to the Reich. International financial transactions can be carried on by cable and wireless, as well as by mail. Yet our position, though strong, is far from perfect. In 1916, we covered the same ground in our dispute with the British. At that time, Secretary of State Lansing admitted that mail which contained securities and other financial instruments might be classed as merchandise and seized if it was contraband. Obviously, this was an entering wedge for the British because it was clearly necessary to open mail to see whether it contained such financial instruments. In other words, we gave our case away at the start. And we did it intentionally, for Secretary Lansing says in his memoirs that our protest was made quote, half-heartedly, as a matter of form, and with no intention to force the issue, end quote. That was done for two reasons, because of sympathy for the Allied cause and because of a desire to retain freedom of action if we ever became a belligerent. As a matter of fact, after we entered the war, we ourselves censored all males touching American ports so that we cannot logically complain if the British, for example, stop American clipper planes on their way to Europe via Bermuda, and search the mails there. Now, these squabbles over neutral rights are bound to create intense irritation against the states controlling the seas in time of war. We, too, are a, are a world power with a first-class naval establishment, and it is not easy for Americans passively to suffer economic losses and personal inconvenience because of a war in which we are not directly involved. But the United States is obviously confronted with an insoluble dilemma. Many of us sympathize with the Allies and do not wish to bludgeon them into changing their war policies, which are for them a matter of life or death. Yet we have rights of our own to uphold. We have yielded many of these under the neutrality law and have done a great deal to facilitate the Allies' control of our overseas trade. If we suspect that in spite of this, Britain and France are unnecessarily interfering with our affairs, we tend to become irritated, and with good reason. What begins as a minor exchange of diplomatic notes may become a very serious controversy. This was exactly the situation into which we drifted in 1916. After two years of protest to both sides in the war, popular indignation against both the Allies and Germany rose toward the boiling point. In September 1916, we passed legislation which permitted the President 
to prohibit the importation of products from Britain and France into this country if they did not cease interfering unjustly with our exports and our mail. We also authorized the President to prevent vessels which discriminated against American goods or shippers from leaving American ports. We never used these retaliatory powers because our anger over the Allied moves was swallowed up in our vastly greater indignation over the German submarine campaign. But today, ironically enough, our neutrality law, by preventing American ships and citizens from entering the combat area in Western Europe, has saved us so far from difficulties of this type with the Germans. What shall we do this time if more and more Americans protest to the State Department against the Allied war policy? Now, it would not be fair to say that this has yet become an alarming problem. Protection of American neutral rights is only one small portion of our broad foreign policy, which strives to protect many other interests as well. There are those who believe that these interests can best be defended by a policy of strict aloofness from the warring portions of the world. They believe that since we have given up so many of our rights in the Neutrality Act, we ought not logically to fight for any others. We should realize, in other words, that this is a totalitarian war to be waged by any and all means at the disposal of the belligerents, and we should not resist their measures. Others view the European struggle in a different light. They are convinced of the justice of the French and British cause and would therefore like to see this country fall in with all measures which would aid the Allies against Germany, even at a considerable cost to ourselves. Eventually, one of these views may well prevail. But meanwhile, Americans are going to clamor for protection of their rights abroad, and especially in an election year, the administration is going to defend these rights on paper. In view of the fundamental sympathies of the American public and the Washington administration, however, we are not likely to do more than protest for the time being. But in the long run, it would perhaps be wisest for the Allies to convince this country that they are doing what they can to minimize the inconvenience and the loss to us. Then, with goodwill on both sides, it might be possible to reach agreement on specific questions. We recognize the need for war measures, but we should like to feel that they are no more stringent than necessary. You have been listening to Mr. David H. Popper, Research Associate of the Foreign Policy Association, speaking in the America Looks Abroad series. In the world of today, foreign affairs are your affairs. So if you are interested in knowing the facts behind the headlines, send for a free copy of the weekly bulletin written by the people you hear on this program and carrying an article by Mr. Popper. Address your letter or postcard to the Foreign Policy Association, number 8 West 40th Street, New York City. And tune into this station next Sunday at 3.15 to hear another speaker in the series America Looks Abroad. This is the National Broadcasting Company, RCA Building, Radio City, New York. Welcome back. Of course, when this episode first aired, Neville Chamberlain was still at number 10 Downing Street. His government was pushed out in May of 1940 after repeated missteps and stumbling with M.P. Leo Arney, or uh, quoting Oliver Cromwell's word, you have sat too long for any good you are doing. Depart, I say. Let us have done with you. In the name of God, go. 
He was, of course, replaced by Winston Churchill. And on that same day, the Battle of France began. And one of the most devastating blows to the Allies that left 360,000 dead or wounded, as well as nearly 2 million uh, prisoners captured by the Axis. This next episode of America Looks Abroad comes just six days before the final end of the Battle of France. But even at this point, the outcome in that battle was definitely in favor of the Nazis. So here is America Looks Abroad from June the 16th of 1940. This is the 31st broadcast in the America Looks Abroad series, presented by the officers and staff members of the Foreign Policy Association. This nonpartisan organization, open to all who are interested in American foreign policy, offers accurate information on current international events. In the world of today, foreign affairs are your affairs. The Battle of France and Italy's entry into the war have swung the military balance strongly against the Allies. Mr. David H. Popper, research associate of the Foreign Policy Association, will discuss the Battle of France and the United States. Mr. Popper. Good afternoon. This has been a black week for the democracy, the blackest perhaps in all their history. In the 12 days of the Battle of France, they have suffered the consequences of more than 20 years of mistaken policy. The Germans have beaten down the game French army. They have hammered and rushed their way into Paris. With relentless force, they have outflanked the citadels of the Maginot Line. At the decisive hour, Hitler has been aided by Italy's entrance into the struggle. While the British are hastily refurbishing their battered expeditionary force and trying to land fresh units in France, the French government has fled from Paris to Tours, from Tours to Bordeaux. Premier Renaud has twice addressed desperate appeals for assistance to President Roosevelt. French political and military leaders are closeted in long sessions to canvas possibilities for the future. Rumors of an imminent French surrender are flying thick and fast. We are watching the crumbling of a country, an empire, a way of life. And, especially for those of us who know France and the French, it is a heart-rending spectacle. How have the Nazis succeeded in doing what we should have thought practically impossible two months ago? They have done it by refusing to fight this war on the Allies' terms. The British and French, you remember, made preparations for a long war, lasting at least three years. They were content to assume the defensive on the battlefield behind their fortified line, relying on the blockade to weaken Germany so that its fighting power would wither away as its reserve materials were gradually consumed. Meanwhile, the Allies could slowly mobilize their own fighting strength. Hitler understood that he could not win this type of war. From the German point of view, the situation demanded that the armies and the fortresses that blocked German domination of Europe and German access to the seas must be smashed before the blockade could be made effective. To smash them, it was necessary to concentrate at the crucial point, a massed striking force the like of which the world has never seen. It was necessary to win the initial advantage, and, once having won it, never to give the enemy time to catch his breath or to reform his forces. Time was of the essence. Time, efficiency and energy, single-minded concentration, on the purpose to be achieved. The Allies had prepared for the kind of fighting they learned 25 years ago, 
But the new fashions in this field are made in Berlin. Hitler, it is said, has become a deep student of German history. He remembers first that the German victories of the last century have been won in short wars. The triumph over Denmark in 1864, the seven-week campaign against Austria in 1866, the Franco-Prussian War, really won at Sedan in 1870. Second, the Führer must see that Germany's fatal error in 1914 was to engage in simultaneous warfare on two fronts, against the Allies and Russia. Hence the rules of German success are clear. Mobilize everything for one quick and supreme gamble, and in politics and in war, isolate your opponent before striking at him. To this the Germans have added another maxim, born of the bitter stalemate on the Western Front in World War I. Avoid stability at all costs. Find the enemy's weak spot. Pour your forces through the gap. Circle his rear and cut his communications. The perfect coordination of air and mechanized forces has made this strategy work, and the Allies do not seem to have been able to develop methods to stop it. Note the superb technical success of the Nazi operations in the West. The Norwegian campaign, started just over two months ago, secured Germany's northern flank and gave the Reich a vantage point from which to break the blockade and harass the British coast. The second step, from May 10th to 14th, was the carefully planned conquest of the Netherlands, completed before any Allied countermeasures could be fully organized. The third phase, following immediately thereafter, was the mysterious penetration of the supposedly impassable Ardennes forest in southeast Belgium by German mechanized forces, and their equally mysterious breakthrough against the inadequate French troops at Sedan on the Meuse. Someday we shall learn just how this happened, for it is the key to all that has followed. The onrushing Germans cut the Allied forces in two, crushed the Belgians, forced the British to abandon their materiel and retreat across the channel, and then turned against the remainder of the French armies, largely bereft of British aid, and strove to shatter their resistance. If this last blow can be carried through, Britain, the arch-enemy, will confront the Reich weakened and alone. What will follow this cataclysmic tragedy rests in the realm of conjecture. One thing is certain. With the vital centers of the great British and French empires in jeopardy, the outlying territories are no longer sources of strength, but because they require dispersed forces to, dis to defend, sources of weakness. That is crystal clear to Mussolini. The Duchy wants to wrest control of Gibraltar and Suez, those strong points of empire, from allied hands in order to give Italy unrestricted access to the open sea and thus make possible the expansion of an Italian-African empire. Like Germany on the continent, Italy enjoys the great advantage of a central position of interior lines in the new struggle for the Mediterranean. The fascists can strike outward from the center. The allies have had to spread their forces at numerous points along the 3,000-mile route from Gibraltar to Aden at the southern end of the Red Sea. Normally, British and French naval and air forces would be able to converge with crushing effect on Italian cities and bases. But today, a high proportion of Anglo-French strength must have been called home, and what remains in the Mediterranean is cut off from reinforcements and new supplies. The world knows that Mussolini has the resources for only a short war. He hopes to win a short and easy war now, under conditions that may never recur. 
so that Italy will never again be shut off from the materials of the outside world. And at least one other nation, Turkey, believes that the chances for success in this endeavor are so good that it has decided not to enter the war on the Allied side just now, despite its mutual assistance pacts with Britain and France. In diplomacy and in war, nothing succeeds like success. Nothing less than the future of the British and French empires, therefore, is at stake in the Battle of France. These empires are not just aggregates of territory under central domination. Each embodies, in its own way, principles of government and principles of individual life which seem foredoomed to vanish in Europe if the fascist drive is successful. And if democratic ideals and democratic freedom are driven from Europe, they are endangered here. Not that we need fear an immediate invasion from across the Atlantic. Assuming that could be done at all, it would take long preparation and superhuman effort. But several straws in the wind show just where the danger lies. Note the Uruguayan discovery of the activities of its German minority. Note also the President of Brazil's speech last Tuesday with its frankly fascist tone, and the haste of our Congress to pass a resolution putting this country on record against transfer of European colonies in this hemisphere to other non-American states. And finally, the concern over so-called fifth column activity in this country. The plain fact is that millions of Americans feel that a Nazi victory in Europe would destroy the stability of American life. That is why, in answer to Premier Reynaud's appeal, President Roosevelt has assured the French that the United States will redouble its efforts to send airplanes, artillery, and munitions to the Allies, as long as they continue to resist. But the clouds of airplanes for which Monsieur Reynaud asked cannot be forthcoming. There should be no illusion about our ability to turn the tide in Europe this summer. That cannot be done, because the United States, as surprised as the Allies by what has happened in recent weeks, is caught at this crucial moment without armaments on the scale necessary for use on European battlefields. We are sending something like 340 of our Army and Navy planes, in addition to those our manufacturers have built for the Allies, to Britain and to France. But these are not sufficient. We are preparing to dig deeply into our old World War stocks of Army reserves. According to unofficial reports, we are sending an estimated 600,000 Enfield rifles, between 500 and 800 field guns, apparently 75-millimeter field artillery, and a considerable number of old model trench mortars, machine guns, and similar equipment, together with ammunition. But these, too, are not sufficient. And we have too few of the newer weapons of warfare to make large enough contributions. Under its latest procurement program, adopted last spring, the United States Army had on hand, on the 1st of May, 1940, 448 3-inch anti-aircraft guns, and none of the newer 90-millimeter model. It had 15 37-millimeter rapid-fire anti-aircraft weapons, 38,000 semi-automatic rifles, 10 light and 18 medium tanks, and no heavy tanks. This is not an all-inclusive list. The United States has hundreds of tanks of earlier models and much other equipment. But plans were not made to acquire large stocks of the most modern and most necessary items until the spring of 1939, when our current expansion program was adopted. That program is not scheduled for completion until the middle of 1941. Perhaps American military production can be speeded up, but everyone familiar with the complicated processes of arms manufacture knows that it takes many months to get results under the very best of circumstances. 
So we are almost powerless to meet the immediate needs of the Allies. American military commitments or a declaration of war, which, as President Roosevelt said, can only be made by Congress, might have a moral effect on the situation, but scarcely a material effect. This crisis is measured in hours, our assistance in months. In 1917-1918, with many more factors in our favor, one whole year elapsed after our declaration of war, before troops were being sent to France in appreciable numbers, over 100,000 per month. And, politically speaking, this country does not seem prepared today to send men overseas. The only hope for Allied survival, therefore, is for them to gain time, somehow, until their material resources, and ours, can be brought to bear in the field or on the sea. With only slight help from the United States, they must establish and hold a line somewhere until this fall or winter, when military operations will slow down and American supplies will begin to pour out in greater volume. Then, if it were still a non-belligerent, the United States might repeal the Johnson Act and the cash-and-carry provisions of the Neutrality Act, lending or giving money to the Allies and using its own ships to transport war supplies to them. It might send some reconditioned World War destroyers to bolster the Allied fleet. Volunteers might cross the ocean to aid the Allied air and land forces. Most important of all, newly manufactured special steels, machine tools, scientific instruments, aircraft, tanks, and other munitions would stream across the seas. Thus, the crucial question is whether Britain and France can organize a center of resistance which will hold out for the next six months against all attacks. Given the speed and ferocity of the German advance of the last three days, it seems unlikely that such a base can be held in France, although the Allies, abandoning the Maginot Line, may attempt to stand along the River Loire from the ocean to the Swiss border. This would mean that they were attempting to struggle along under tremendous odds, having abandoned to the invaders 75% of France's coal resources, the whole iron and steel industry of Lorraine, the tank and plane factories around Paris, the vast oil depots of the Northwest, and all ports offering easy transportation facilities to Britain. So the outlook for resistance in France is dark. A base might possibly be held in England, although the prospect for feeding and supplying that country when Germany controls the whole continental coast and the shipbuilding or submarine building facilities of Denmark, Holland, Belgium, and France are none too bright. He would be a rash prophet who would predict the outcome of current events with any confidence. We may be sure of only one thing, that out of the chaos of this battle, a new world is emerging in which this generation will have to live. It will profoundly affect the lives and fortunes of us all. Mr. David H. Popper, research associate of the Foreign Policy Association, was today's speaker in the America Looks Abroad series. If you would like a free copy of this talk, send your request to the Foreign Policy Association, 8 West 40th Street, New York City. We invite you to tune in next Sunday to hear another speaker in the America Looks Abroad series. This is the National Broadcasting Company, RCA Building, Radio City, New York. In the face of these setbacks, Prime Minister Winston Churchill remained resolute. In this address from June 18th, 
1940, just two days after the uh, America Looks Abroad uh, broadcast we just played. What General Vagon has called the Battle of France is over. The Battle of Britain is about to begin. Upon this battle depends the survival of Christian civilization. Upon it depends our own British life and the long continuity of our institutions and our empire. The whole fury and might of the enemy must very soon be turned on us. Hitler knows that he will have to break us in this island or lose the war. If we can stand up to him, all Europe may be freed and the life of the world may move forward into broad, sunlit uplands. But if we fail, then the whole world, including the United States, including all that we have known and cared for, will sink into the abyss of a new dark age, made more sinister and perhaps more protracted by the lights of perverted science. Let us therefore brace ourselves to our duty. So bear ourselves that if the British Empire and its commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will still say, this was their finest hour. As the year wore on, more nations fell to the Axis. What was it like in those uh, German-occupied nations? This episode of America Looks Abroad from September the 22nd, 1945, takes a look at Europe under Nazi rule. America Looks Abroad. This is the 43rd in a series of broadcasts presented by the staff members of the Foreign Policy Association. Today's subject is Europe under Nazi rule, and the speaker is Mrs. Vera Michelis Dean, director of the research department of the Foreign Policy Association. Mrs. Dean. Good afternoon. For the past two weeks, Britain has been engaged in a life-and-death struggle with the Axis powers. As Germany unleashed its total air war on Britain, Italy began its long-awaited drive into Egypt, and it is now reported that the Axis powers are urging Spain to enter the war on their side. The principal object of the Italian drive into Egypt is the Suez Canal. This canal, as you know, links the Mediterranean with the Far East and is regarded as the lifeline of the British Empire. The Suez Canal is under the political rule of Egypt, an ally of Britain. But it is managed by a private company, controlled by French and British shareholders. In this company, there are no Italian representatives. The Italians have long aspired to control of this canal, through which their ships must pass to reach Italian colonies in East Africa, notably Ethiopia. While the Italians are striving to seize the Suez Canal at one end, at the other end of the Mediterranean they are demanding that Spain should either attack Gibraltar or permit German and Italian troops to undertake this task. Should this double attack on the exits and entrances of the Mediterranean succeed, the British fleet might conceivably be bottled up in this sea, which Italian nationalists describe as Mare Nostrum, our sea, an Italian victory would also have serious repercussions in the Near East, where British prestige might be shaken. 
It would also enable the Germans and Italians to seize the oil fields of the Near East. But the British Navy still controls the Eastern Mediterranean and it is harassing the Italian troops as they advance along the coast. And you must remember that the Italians must cross a vast desert before they reach the fertile Nile Valley. Much, of course, will depend on the attitude of Egypt. This country is an ally of Britain, but it still maintains a policy of non-belligerency and is not officially at war with Italy. The Italians apparently hope that Egypt will oppose this war and will force the British to withdraw from Egyptian territory, thus opening the way for Italian seizure of the Suez Canal. Meanwhile, the first two weeks of Germany's total air war against Britain ended yesterday, with no clear demonstration that the Nazis had secured daylight mastery of the air, which, according to Mr. Churchill, is the crux of the whole war. But neither is it clear that the German attack has yet reached its peak. Last Tuesday, Mr. Churchill told the House of Commons that air raids during the month of September had taken a toll of 2,000 dead and 8,000 wounded, most of them civilians. This figure is, of course, shocking in terms of individual lives but it is regarded by military experts as far below that to be expected in a large and thickly populated city. The material destruction is more difficult to estimate, partly because British censorship does not permit American correspondents to disclose the damage done to military objectives, such as oil tanks, arsenals, aircraft and armament factories. As far as we can determine, many buildings in London have been razed or damaged, Communications have been temporarily interrupted at various points. Stores of food have been spoiled. And portions of London's docks, where 37% of the vessels engaged in overseas trade are loaded and unloaded, have been destroyed or disorganized. But information from official and private sources indicates that London civilians, with few exceptions, are adjusting themselves as best they can to the most destructive air raids of the war. Essential services are being carried on. Only 2% of the oil stores have been destroyed. London still functions as a port, although on a sharply reduced scale. And the American military commission, which has just returned from Britain, has indicated that the Germans would have to bomb London and England for a year before they could actually destroy the country. But the British authorities have no illusions regarding the critical dangers to which the country may be exposed in the immediate future. On September 11, Mr. Churchill warned his people that Nazi preparations for invasion on a great scale are steadily going forward along the entire German-occupied coast of Europe, from Norway to Spain. A Nazi invasion, said Mr. Churchill, might be launched at any time on England, Scotland or Ireland, or on all three. Since then, however, the British Air Force has taken the offensive and it is blasting at Nazi bases on the coast of France, Belgium and Holland. The outcome of this terrific struggle for mastery of the air remains in the balance. Most military experts believe that the Germans will have to gain a clear superiority in the air before they take the risk of following up their air raids with an invasion. So far, this war has provided no clear answer to the question whether the airplane alone can decide the issue of a conflict. As you know, in Poland, Holland, Belgium, France, the Germans not only had a vast superiority in airplanes, but they encountered little or no anti-aircraft resistance, 
And what is most important, they were in a position to follow up their air raids immediately with a large-scale land invasion, where they again enjoyed a vast superiority in number of men and tanks. This situation may not be duplicated in Britain. What the Germans themselves hope to do is first to disrupt British shipping, destroy or disorganize war industries, and undermine the morale of civilians to the point where the British would either sue for peace or be so weakened as to prove an easy prey for invasion. The outcome of this air blitzkrieg, therefore, depends not only on the relative quality and number of British and German airplanes and pilots, but also on the morale of the two peoples. The air war over Britain is testing the endurance not merely of the trained fighter, but of the average human being in a way in which it has not been tested in modern times, except during the Spanish Civil War and the war in China. In both these cases, the endurance of determined human beings proved equal to the strain imposed by brutal and vastly superior force, not because the Spanish loyalists and the Chinese necessarily hoped for victory, but because they had reached the conclusion that death was preferable to subjection. It is all the easier for the British to reach this conclusion when they look at Europe under Nazi rule. It is obviously too early to form definite conclusions regarding the system Germany may establish on the continent in case of decisive victory over Britain. But the shape of that system is already becoming visible. As you know, the Nazis believe that the era of small national states is over that from now on the world will be divided up into large continental units, each ruled by a dominant race. Under such a system, Europe would be ruled by Germany, the Far East by Japan, Africa by Germany and Italy, the Western Hemisphere perhaps by purified United States, which however would have to permit free access to the resources of Latin America by German-controlled Europe. Although the Nazis are deeply preoccupied with their campaign against Britain, they are already engaged in reorganizing Europe to fit this pattern, except in Poland, whose population is regarded as permanently inferior to the German master race, and which has been directly incorporated into the Reich. The Nazis appear willing, even eager, to set up native administrations in occupied countries. German commissioners have been put in charge of Denmark, Norway, Belgium, Holland, occupied France. But the Germans seek to place responsibility for administration of the conquered territories on native administrators who are not necessarily former Nazis. In Norway, for example, the Germans showed a certain reluctance to entrust a puppet government to the Nazi leader, Major Quisling, and urged the Norwegians to form their own administrative council. The same situation has been found in Belgium and other countries. This tendency on the part of the Nazis to favor the establishment of native regimes may be due to the hope of winning the sympathy of conquered people. But it is more probably due to Germany's desire to avoid criticism for the hardships and misfortunes imposed by German conquest on occupied countries. In working out these political arrangements, the Nazis were obviously planning for a war of short duration. As the war drags on, it may seem increasingly necessary, from their point of view, to impose ever stricter controls on native administrators for fear that the population of occupied territories, 
encouraged by Britain's resistance, may resort to some form of passive disobedience. Whatever may be Hitler's ultimate plans for the political reorganization of Europe, it is already clear that many of the practices familiar in Germany have been introduced in occupied territories, at least for the duration of the war, either directly by the Nazis or by native administrators under Nazi pressure. Among such measures are secret police, concentration camps for persons regarded as hostile to the new order, censorship of the press and mails, restrictions on the use of radio and telephone, the spread of anti-Semitism and abolition of secret societies, notably Freemasonry. In the economic sphere, the Nazis have taken far-reaching measures to achieve both short-term and long-term objectives. Their short-term objective is to supplement Germany's reserves of foodstuffs, raw materials and consumers' goods by requisition or purchase of all available products in occupied territories and their export into the Reich. The goods requisitioned or purchased are paid for either in native currency, whose value in terms of German marks is arbitrarily fixed by the Nazi authorities at a low rate, or through various drafts, which must be honored by the central banks of the occupied countries. In either case, the German government and German citizens purchase food and other goods in occupied territories at very low prices, which in effect are actually paid by the conquered countries themselves. The long-range objective of the Nazis is to de-industrialize all conquered countries and force them to expand their agriculture, thus reducing them to a colonial status. Under this scheme, Germany, perhaps Italy, would act as the industrial centers of Europe, drawing foodstuffs and raw materials from the occupied territories, which would then be forced to purchase German and Italian manufactured goods at prices set by the Axis powers. Measures looking toward this fundamental economic reorganization of Europe have already been taken, notably in Eastern Europe and the Balkans, which the Germans, even before 1914, regarded as the natural sphere of influence of the Reich. In this region, the Germans are systematically reducing industrial production. So far as the more industrialized countries of Western Europe are concerned, it is already evident that the Germans intend either to close or curtail industries which in the past have relied on imported raw materials, and to transfer their workers to the Reich, and also to encourage or force them to develop their agriculture. The significant point about this development is that by closing down or curtailing the industries of occupied countries, the Nazis are reducing the capacity of these countries for eventual rearmament and armed revolt against Nazi rule. The growing realization of what Nazi rule may mean for non-German peoples in case of German victory has profoundly altered the attitude of many Europeans toward the war. When Germany was rapidly conquering one country after another last spring, it seemed to many people that a total German uh, victory over Britain was inevitable, and that it was imperative to come to terms with the new Nazi order. But when Britain began to offer vigorous resistance, and German plans for a quick victory had to be revised, sentiment in the occupied territories underwent a fundamental change. The hope then revived that Britain might, after all, if not actually win the war, at least cause a stalemate, which would restrict German domination of the continent. And with this hope came the belief that only a British victory or a stalemate could save non-German Europe from total eclipse. Everywhere on the continent, people today are groping for new ideas, new leaders, new hopes. We must remember 
we and the British, that the present conflict was precipitated not merely by the intransigence and greed of the Germans. It has far deeper causes for which we too are responsible and which we too, in case of a German defeat, must undertake to correct. You have been listening to Mrs. Vera Michelis Dean, Director of the Research Department of the Foreign Policy Association. If you would like a free copy of this talk, send your request to the Foreign Policy Association, number 22 East 38th Street, New York City. 22 East 38th Street, New York City. The Foreign Policy Association is a nonpartisan organization open to all who are interested in American foreign policy. It offers accurate information on current world happenings, and in the world of today, foreign affairs are your affairs. We invite you to tune in next Sunday to hear another speaker in the series America Looks Abroad. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Welcome back. Well, while many of these nations would actually experience a similar subjugation under the hands of the communists uh, during the Cold War. Welcome back. Quite a fate and quite a uh, miserable situation for the people of these nations. The Nazis would have years of uh, committing atrocities and of course after the war many would fall behind the Iron Curtain and meet a whole new set of dictators the road to freedom being a long one. Well, that will do it for today. We will return tomorrow with uh, our last three uh, specials of America Looks Abroad. Send your comments to box13 at greatdetectives.net. From Boise, Idaho, this is your host, Adam Graham, signing off. If you would like to share your experience or that of a loved one during World War II, please email your stories to box13 at greatdetectives.net. We will consider all stories to be shared on the air. We also welcome your suggestion as to future programs. This program is dedicated to those who fought and died in World War II and is presented as a service of the Great Detectives of Old Time Radio, greatdetectives.net. The opening theme is The Heroic by Ken Curlin, kencurlin.com.